Thank you. It's a pleasure to have a chance to speak about this work, which uh, I know from casual conversation with some of the fellows at the Works Institute is, is of interest to, to work in journalists, which is one of the things I appreciate the most about the opportunities to work at the Institute. That we do um, research that isn't simply for the shelves of the library, if you will, but for practicing professionals. Um, as I looked over my notes uh, today, I thought about what kind of stories that I'm going to tell you today. Um, and um, I thought, is it a fairy tale? Um, if it is, it's one that still hasn't found an ending yet, and certainly not a happy ending. So I discounted the idea of a fairy tale. And I thought, actually, what it is is a coming of age story. It's a village one in the, in the how could it be more appropriate? It's a, it's a distinctively continental European genre, if you will, in, in, in literature, at least the concept of it. It's a story of people who. Um, who venture forth into the world to try to do something new, and in the process encounter adversity, and they struggle, um, and they taste defeat, um, but also learn in the process something about themselves, about where they're coming from, um, and where they might be heading. Um, that's the literary version, if you will, uh, the abstract version of it. The concrete one is a story of journalistic uh, startups in Western Europe, set. and as Robert um, suggested, there's been a boom of new journalistic online startups across Europe as there has in much of the rest of the world. Um, and these are startups that are, to a large extent, uh, motivated by journalistic entrepreneurship. These are entities that are started by journalists who want to do journalism, only do it online, do it in new ways, on basically new business models. But of course, the motivation for these things are not simply about the aspirations of the people involved. It's also it happens in the, on the backdrop that those of you in the room who, who are journalists who would follow the, the analysis of particular the media industry in, in, Western, in the Western world, but, but also in, including continental Europe, is a backdrop of decline, if you will, in the, in the industry, not of journalism as a profession necessarily, not necessarily in social function or what it can accomplish, but in terms of the structures, the industry that has historically sustained and constrained professional journalism is as many of you know, in, in structural decline in much of, of, of the West. And many of the people who start these things come out of that industry. They come with a set of professional dispositions, with experience, and a certain conception of what journalism is ought to be that's based on that experience. Now, in the light of that structural decline um, and the tradition, if you will, of journalism, these people want to renew for a new uh, 21st century, um, a very simple question is quite pressing, which is, you know, can it be done? Can you find models that will sustain something akin to what we have known as professional journalism on an online-only basis uh, in the current environment? And the title of the talk sort of gives away, if you will, the, the, the tenor um, of the story I'm um, about to, talk, uh, to tell you. So a quick overview um, is what we, I'll, I'll aim to, to provide, and, and then some food for thought for, for discussion, if you will. So the work I did with um, with uh, Nicola Bruno, who was a journalist fellow at the Works Institute uh, last year, um, looks at um, nine strategically chosen uh, case studies of journalistic online startups from three different Western European countries. So that's the framework view. That's the data we have and the framework within which we're analyzing it. Um, we can talk about the limitations of that, if you will, and, but also the, the reasoning behind um, the setup, these are the, just the logos of the different startups uh, with a stock photo of a journalist who's too poor to afford a contemporary cell phone or contemporary laptop and then she was sort of 90s equipment. 
the reasoning for looking at these particular nine startups that you see on the screen um, was that all of them were highlighted by people who know the media scene in these countries as particularly either particularly important or particularly successful startups. So it's not a random sample. We haven't simply taken random startups and looked at them. We've chosen startups that people who knew the country in question thought were particularly promising or, or important in the case of MedSites, which has already closed, and particularly important examples of what journalistic online startups looked like in that country. Um, the three countries we're looking at were Germany, France, and Italy. And now, there is a question as to what extent the experience of startups in these countries is generalizable beyond to other countries in Europe. But just to give you a sense of the reasoning behind looking at those, the commonality they have is that all three of them are very large media markets that are defined to a large extent by geography and language. So it's not like Spain, which has a potentially uh, intercontinental uh, audience in Latin America. It's not like English, which of course is a, is a language with global reach. All of them are primarily national media markets. Um, they're also large in terms of population, in terms of online advertising, in terms of consumer spend in media, all three of them are amongst the 10 largest media markets in the world. They all have, with Italy being a partial laggard, high levels of internet access and use. So the question of whether you have critical mass shouldn't be as pronounced in these three countries as if we had looked at, say, Finland or indeed Denmark, uh, my, own, uh, my own country. The overall findings as to the extent to which these new startups can sustain themselves are sobering. Um, all of them are struggling to survive. Um, a quick overview of the nine organizations we looked at, which gives you a sense of when they were founded, how large they are, what's the budget we're talking about. And um, importantly, if you want to focus on the get down to, to the basis of the business, follow the money, right? It's a question of are they breaking even? Um, of the nine organizations we looked at, asset strategically choosing case studies, not random sampling, uh, not representative sampling, but organizations that are considered particularly successful or promising in these countries. Of the nine companies we looked at, two are breaking even. Um, uh, one started breaking even when we were about to go to print, so we had to sort of um, revise slightly to, to take into account um, that. Um, five are operating at a loss and have been for the entirety of their existence. Uh, one operated at a loss uh, from the moment it was founded till it was acquired in December last year uh, by a news magazine, a weekly news magazine, uh, and folded into the portfolio of that news company that owned that, uh, that magazine. And one has closed after nine years of, of operations without ever turning a profit at this side of Germany. So again, I realize this is a small sample. Why is that important? Well. <clears throat> A way of thinking about the online ecology is to think of it as a, an extension of the newspaper industry, and then you evaluate the commercial sustainability of each individual property on its own. But if we look at other parts of the, of the media industry, that's not necessarily the best way to approach things. So think about the movie industry, for instance. A rule of thumb is that in the movie industry, there's one blockbuster that really brings home the bacon, and there are three titles that break even, and then there are six that run out of loss. So if you approach things that way, or indeed if you're a magazine publisher, There'll be a few flagship titles that bring in the bulk of the revenue, and then a number of small and niche publications um, that may break even and contribute a bit to the bottom line. But a lot of magazines are launched, a lot of magazines are also closed because they don't break even. There's constant experimentation in the magazine business. So I realize these are small samples when we think about it in terms of portfolio models of, of parts of the media industry where you launch hundreds of films 
or you've launched dozens of titles and you expect only some of them to break even. But if we think about this through the lens of the newspaper industry, which is where most of the journalists who are involved in this come from, and evaluate each individual business, they're not doing very well. Um, and that's a problem um, in many ways. Partly it's a problem because the people who run these companies are running them as standalone businesses. They do not have a portfolio. They do not have 10 titles. They do not have 100 titles. They're not like condemnations in the magazine industry with hundreds and hundreds of titles where you can lose and some and win and some. No, they have to break even on each individual title to sustain their business and practice their profession, which is what it's also about. Um, another thing worth keeping in mind, of course, is that we've only looked at some of these for, for a few years. It's a short time span. And startups of any kind will take years to break even. Um, so in that sense too, if we, had, if we had looked at a recently launched magazine two years after its launch, it would very likely be running at a loss. Um, but there is a question of when you reach sustainability and of course importantly whether you have access to investments and capital that can sustain you until you may or may not reach that point in time. And so far, as said, uh, all of these are reliant on investors who keep on contributing money to pay for uh, operating, um, operating costs. So, why do they struggle? I mean, as said, all of these are highlighted as uh, promising uh, examples of online journalism by, by specialists who, who know these markets well, who appreciate the, the innovations of the forms they use, the quality of the content that they produce, the stories that they break. Why is it that they're struggling to, to break even? Well, I'm going to highlight sort of two sides, if you will, to a basic explanation. One has to do with context, which differs from country to country. So, if you look at the three countries that we're um, examining in this report, um, you have quite different media markets. So Germany, for instance, um, which is a very large media market, but also interestingly one where we had the fewest uh, startups with success. In Germany, essentially, you have only some very, very small niche-oriented startups and a few high locals who are breaking even, whereas larger enterprises have failed. But um, part of the explanation is the competition that they face from a very strong and only slowly declining legacy newspaper. So the German newspaper industry, for instance, has held up much better than its counterparts in other countries. Circulation, paid print circulation is high. It has declined at a slower pace than it has in the Anglo-speaking world. Um, all newspapers by now have full digital offerings online uh, and, and leverage, successfully leverage their brands and their uh, and the uh, resources of their offline newsroom to attract audiences that are orders of magnitude larger than any of the online startups we looked at. Um, and though they are having to um, to cut costs and adjust their business to uh, um, uh, to a new a new situation, they are in much better shape than newspapers in many other countries. Um, and, and and indeed, of course, there are also very strong broadcasts in Germany, both commercial and public service broadcasts. So startups that launch in Germany thinking this is the largest advertising market in Europe, it's the largest consumer uh, media spend market in Europe, it's I think the fourth, third or fourth largest media market in the world, uh, it's also a country that has higher levels of incident penetration and use than the US. Companies that large, launch in this environment, journalistic online startups that launch in this environment thinking this is a right market for innovation, um, have uh, account, not accounted for the fact that they are facing very strong legacy incumbents who are moving on online and essentially uh, using their online and digital offerings as loss leaders. They're subsidizing their online offerings at the off the back of their offline business um, and started to find it very hard uh, to compete with these. France and Italy is a different situation. You have much weaker 
and more rapidly uh, declining legacy news media. So newspapers in both France and Italy are notoriously weak, in particular at the national level. Uh, there are digital uh, um, offerings with the exceptions, uh, with some individual titles that are exceptions quite here, the Vancera and the Republica in Italy um, have been lagging behind the, uh, the development in, in the rest of the world. Uh, and broadcasters, in, in, with the exception of TF1 in France, uh, in, in both countries have also been quite slow to develop their online offerings when you compare them to broadcasters in countries like Germany or indeed the UK. So, though France and Italy are smaller markets, both in terms of population, in terms of internet penetration, uh, access and use, in terms of online advertising, um, actually, ironically, there, there are some more grounds for optimism in these markets simply because the competition that they face from incumbents is not as, uh, as fierce as the one that startups trying to launch in Germany um, face. So those are some contextual variations that are important to keep in mind when you try to understand what are the differences in the, in the, in the track record and performance, if you will, of startups in these different countries. Now, there are also some shared challenges, some, some challenges that exist across all these three countries, despite those contextual variations that, uh, that, that we think are important to, um, to be aware of when we think about the, the prospects for journalistic startups. Um, the first one um, is uh, that even in the case of France and Italy, where you have uh, weak legacy media, it's still legacy media that dominate the online news market. When you look at uh, audience and content, these are, the, these are the websites that attract the largest audience, are the sites of legacy media. Newspapers in particular in all these countries, and to a smaller extent, broadcasters. Of course, in the case of the UK, BBC is the largest website, but in, in the country we've been looking at, newspapers actually are the ones that dominate online news provision. So here's just a quote, if you will, um, as an illustration of the challenge that, that, that led to the closure of NetSites, on which was the longest running and one of the most ambitious, editorially ambitious, in terms of the investment in newsroom uh, resources of the startup we looked at, of the challenge that they, that they faced. German newspapers were quite late in, in embracing the web and really making this part of their, of their business strategy and the ways in which they interacted with their readers. But from the early 2000s, they really started catching up. And after a brief grace period in which NetSites had been one of the largest news sites in Germany, without breaking even, um, they started facing much hard, uh, harder competition from, uh, from Spiegel, uh, from Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, from Süddeutsche Zeitung, and so on and so forth, from legacy competitors that had much larger newsrooms and that they couldn't compete with. Now, this is important um, to keep in mind uh, because of the economics of online advertising in particular, which is the question of what is the value of your audience? Um, the online market is hugely concentrated, and the value and the, the flow of advertising spend reflects that uh, concentration of the audience. So you'll see a, a second version of that same fundamental point in, in a second, but, but just to illustrate it in terms of the distribution of advertising spend within a particular genre like news, um, it's, it's estimated that the top 10 sites um, attract 70% of the advertising. Not a single one of the uh, startups we have looked at have managed to break into that. So not a single one of them. So when you see these very large numbers that are bandied around about the extent, the, the, the volume of online advertising spend in a particular country, you can, you can start thinking, well, okay, the top 10 sites are going to take 70% of that. And everyone else will have to fight over what's left. And all the startups that we looked at are amongst the many, many actors, the thousands, often millions of actors, who are fighting over the rest of the online advertising spend. So the competition with legacy media that dominate the, the sector in terms of content 
um, and it combined with the dynamics of the online advertising market is a major challenge. It's across all these three countries, and I would argue is a, is a challenge that starts face across the world. Indeed, the second um, challenge that they all face um, is also about the the market for online advertising, but it's one that um, that doesn't have anything to do with news in particular. That doesn't have, that isn't about the dominance of newspapers and broadcasters in, in online news. It's a much more um, fundamental uh, challenge in terms of breaking even online, um, which is that you have to run to stand still. Um, because inventory is expanding much faster than demand is. So you have a, a, a often a double-digit growth in online advertising over time, um, but the expansion in terms of the number of page, pages that are on websites that are out there is expanding much faster because of the essentially zero cost of launching new, of launching new sites. So the, the value of a given audience is eroding over time. Here you have um, Rue Catalaneuf from France, which again was one of the sites, <clears throat> one of the sites that have been highlighted around the world as, as a really interesting and important new startup in, in Europe, where in 2008, Pierre Husky, who was one of the co-founders of the site, spoke to, an, to, uh, a, a, um, to a, a, a tech blog, and at that point in time, uh, Rue Catalaneuf had about uh, 800, uh, sorry, had about 1 million unique visitors per month. As saying that that if they um, that that was currently bringing in one million euros, if they hit two million visitors a month, new visitors per month, they expected at that time that would generate three million euro in advertising alone. Remember, this is because then they would have moved up to the top ten, where you start getting not only more volume but also more money for your advertisements. In 2011, Roy Katzmann had actually hit the target of two million unique monthly visitors. But they generated less than a million euro in advertising revenue. Actually, they generated about 800,000 euros. So they had doubled their audience, but their revenues had declined. This is about something called the, the CPM, basically, which is the, the way in which a lot of online advertising is sold, which is a rate per thousand impressions you get. And that rate is declining over time because the inventory is growing much faster than, than demand. So people who are counting on banner display advertising to bring in the revenues um, are going to be disappointed, essentially. A footnote, for the footnote, if you will, in the economics of online advertising, um, this asset, the overall online economy, is incredibly concentrated. So I, I spoke briefly about that within the sphere of news in, in itself, which is heavily dominated by legacy players who have moved online. But of course, in terms of the larger economy of online advertising, it's dominated by very few select US-based players. So Google, to take one example, Senate Media, which is a, a marketing consultancy company, that, that tracks advertising spend estimates that Google alone attracts about 45% of global online advertising spend. 45%. And if you add to that Yahoo uh, and Microsoft and Facebook, you you hit um, you hit a, a, a share of online advertising about 60% globally that goes to four American-based companies that produce basically no original content, professionally produced original content. So again, when you see these numbers, these amazing numbers, German online advertising spend, a billion and a half euro, essentially you can take out two thirds of that, saying, okay, well that's gonna go to uh, the top players, global players, and everyone else will be fighting over the rest. And from the rest that they're fighting over, the legacy media are gonna capture most, most because they have the largest sites. There's very little left to fight over for the startups. So in this environment, uh, suggests survival, um, is a success, or at least a precondition for success, because as said from the outset, the people who start these um, startups, of course they'd like to make money, and some of them would very much like to make money, but most of these people are journalists. 
They want to do journalism. That's what it's about. But to do that, someone has to pay the bills. And they are finding very hard, very, very hard to break even in this environment. Okay, um, I thought I'd say a few things about how will they then survive? Because most of these have actually survived, of course, for, for some years, despite the fact that they're running at an operating loss. Um, most of them benefit from the patience of investors. So they have money from, uh, usually from hedge funds of various sorts of tech investors who are hoping, who have a portfolio model where they invest maybe 100 startups and hope that some of them will, will make it, will hit a bit and, and, uh, and they'll just accept it right off the loss and the rest. There are other ways of breaking even, um, and these are not um, necessarily well developed um, in, in, in this environment yet, but they may be part of the future, given that the economics of a purely commercial model for online news production are, so, are as challenging as they are. So think about three different kinds of potential subsidies. Subsidies from governments, subsidies from charitable donations and philanthropists, and, or subsidies from outside political or commercial interests. State subsidies. Um, in some countries, most notably France, state subsidies for journalistic online endeavors are, are already available. Um, so since 2009, the French state has earmarked 20 million euros for direct subsidies of online press services. And both Rory Catalan-Neuf and Mediapart, two of the startups we look at in France, uh, get about 200,000 euros a year from this fund. In most European countries, these subsidies are not available. Um, even in countries that do give direct subsidies, but there are in France. So, just to put that into perspective though, given the overall operating cost of these two startups, which are some of the largest we've looked at, in the case of Louis Kessler, no, state subsidies made up about uh, less than 10% of their total revenues, which is less than what the average is for the national French press, which gets more subsidies than that. And in the case of media part, it's about 5%. So, subsidies exist, but they're not nearly enough, even in France, which is world, I don't know whether famous is the, the right word for it, known around the world for having state subsidies for, for the media operations. They exist, but they're not, um, they're not uh, available widely, and they're not necessarily on a scale that would support even the smaller, leaner kinds of online operations that we look at in this report. Philanthropic support, so non-profit journalism. This is, a, this is not something we look at directly in the report, but, but it's an, an idea that's very prominent in the conversation around the news, and of course one that's being developed in the US in particular. Uh, ProPublica, Texas Tribune, Minpost, other sites like that that are supported by, by foundations of various sorts. Um, and there are examples of this in Europe too, and here in the UK and elsewhere, where people are trying to set up such non-profit news organizations. Um, it's too soon to tell how this will work out in Europe, um, but it's worth keeping in mind that the total levels of charitable giving, that is donations of this kind of philanthropy in Europe, is much, much lower than it is in the US. So um, a recent report estimated that in the U.S., about 1.6% uh, of GDP, the charitable giving amounts to, one point, to just about 1.6% of GDP. That's actually almost as much as advertising, by the way. That's a very large, uh, that's a very considerable sum, sum of money. But in Germany, charitable giving amounted to 0.2% of GDP. In France, 0.14. In Italy, 0.1. So. In the best case scenario of Germany, one eighth the percentage of GDP of what you see in the US. So, nonprofit, promising, interesting, worth pursuing, but it's worth keeping in mind in Europe that charitable giving is a much smaller part of the overall economy than it is in the US. And then there is the third kind of support um, outside political or commercial interest. My 
subsidized journalism for other purposes. I mean, um, some scientists of the ones group book that have found this kind of support. So um, in, in Media Part in France, which is broken even now, but has historically been supported by a very wealthy French entrepreneur, Sadia Neil, who's also bought Le Monde, and who's a very well-known opponent of President Sarkozy, and is considered a very political figure, and very politically active figure in France, who is subsidizing now not only the operation of Le Monde, but also the operation of Media Part, till it broke even last year. Um, in Italy, uh, there is a whole um, scandal currently unfolding over whether a businessman close to uh, uh, then Prime Minister Berlusconi was channeling state advertising to sustain startups that were then in, in turn um, slandering political opponents of the, of the then Prime Minister. Um, in a, on a much less, uh, I'm not saying these are directly comparable, but on a much le lesser scale in Germany, one of the startups we looked at there, the European, is uh, propped up by uh, essentially by corporate sponsorship by BMW, which was the company that the founder of this startup start, uh, worked for before he uh, launched this site. He is, by the way, also a, a prominent um, former employee of the Conservative Party in, in, in Germany. Now, of course, this kind of subsidy by either political or commercial interest is nothing new, and uh, it's certainly not unique to startups. Um, it's well known in most of the uh, most of the history of journalism, indeed, and, and, and today, in many European newspapers, in particular in Southern Europe, but also in other countries, including this country, um, are kept alive by outside political or corporate interests, not by breaking even on their own business operations, but on the basis of subsidies that are handed out by, uh, by wealthy individuals or organized interests for sentimental reasons or for other reasons. Um, but in the absence of such subsidies, if you can't count the state propping up your business, if you can't count the philanthropists propping up your, your enterprise, if you can't uh, count on wealthy or powerful individuals who will support your endeavor in return for either psychic gratification, as it's called, or uh, more, um, shall we say, concrete, um, quid pro quos, in the absence of these, these startups that we're looking at are all struggling, and they're all exploring um, a much wider range of revenue streams than the ones we have associated with journalism for the last 30, 40 years. So we've thought of journalism for longer than I have been alive um, as something that was primarily funded by advertising and by consumer spend. Uh, so you pay for the newspaper, you pay for cable TV, and or you pay with your time, and advertising both that time from the, the, the media organization. That alone is not enough for the startups we've been looking at online in Western Europe. So they are looking at a much wider range of revenue streams. They're looking at digital subscriptions, user donations. They're selling consultancy services uh, to clients. Uh, they're doing live events. They're doing event planning. And they're doing e-commerce. And of course, they're doing editorials. You can pay for uh, getting your content displayed on their sites. Most of these forms of revenue raise questions about editorial autonomy and journalism, uh, journalistic integrity, the way in which we've come to understand it in the Western world, at least in the last 50 years. But of course, again, as said, as this is a coming of age story where you learn not only something about who you are and where you're going, but also where you're coming from, in a way, there's nothing new about that, about these much more diverse businesses, as Robert is fond of telling the, the, the early frontier press in the US would often run not only the newspaper, but also a bar or even a brothel to subsidize the production uh, of, of the newspaper and uh, would play, shall we say, diverse roles in the local community as politicians as well as editors and businessmen. And maybe this is the future too. Maybe the past is prologue. Um, uh, maybe the uh, journalistic enterprises of the 21st century will have more in common uh, with their 19th century forebears than with the ones that uh, we have known in the 20th century. So with that, thank you.